Just last month, an expedition team was successful in locating Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. The Endurance was trapped in ice and eventually sank to the bottom of the Weddell Sea off the coast of Antarctica in November of 1915. The discovery prompted my husband and I to listen to the book Endurance, which details the escape and survival of all 27 men on board. It's an amazing story, and many people listen to it because of the lessons it contains regarding leadership. You see, people are not going to survive almost two years in sub-freezing temperatures without really good leadership. <laughs> they needed a shelter to find a food supply to keep from freezing to death, and they needed to formulate and execute a plan to get back to civilization when everyone assumed they were already dead. Shackleton is heralded as a phenomenal leader, which he clearly was. But what really stood out to me as we listened to this account was that there were so many times over those two years where Shackleton and his crew were made painfully aware that no amount of skill, determination, or leadership was enough. There were several times where they were sailing along with all of their might just to find out that some unknown current had taken them in the wrong direction. Or as they approached land, a storm blew through and kept them from what seemed right within their grasp. And conversely, at other times, those same currents that had previously derailed them miraculously took them exactly where they needed to go. This story had me thinking about something that we have seen throughout the story of numbers. The interplay between God's sovereignty and our actions. You see, Shackleton and his crew, they should have died, all of them. Without Shackleton's leadership, they probably would have died. But even with Shackleton's leadership, they easily could have died. They almost did several times. It's very easy in a story like that of the endurance to notice this interplay at work. But that same interplay is at work in the stories of every single human being or people group who has ever lived. It's the case for you and I, and it's the case for the Israelites as they get closer and closer to receiving what God has promised them. God is sovereign, and our actions matter. As we work our way through this week's text, we are going to get several examples of this interplay. This week's passage picks up after one of the lowest points in Israel's history to date. It was so low that it was actually given a name, the Peor Incident. The Peor Incident had dire consequences for the Israelites. 24,000 people died in a plague. And chapter 26 opens with a command from God. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the entire Israelite community by their ancestral families of those 20 years old or more, who can serve in Israel's army. 
The timing of the census seems pretty logical. At the end of chapter 25, God commanded the Israelites to attack the Midianites for their role in the Peor incident. It's logical that after commanding a military attack, God would command a military census. However, we know from later on in this chapter that the primary reason for the census was not military in nature. This census was going to be used to determine each tribe's inheritance within the promised land. I love a good census. Said no one ever. <laughs> I believe it was the book of Numbers where I first gave myself permission to just sort of skim through census information and genealogies. So please do not feel bad about skimming these types of lists. As I've grown in my knowledge of the word, I still skim these lists. But as I'm skimming, I often notice names that seem familiar to me. And I've come to love some of the things I have discovered as I skim through these lists. Actually, I'm a big advocate of reading the Bible in this way looking for what stands out to me or what jumps off the page at me, instead of trying to force myself to understand every sentence or every list. That's because if, I'm, if I'm, as I'm reading, I think I should slow down, I do. But in general, I actually read pretty quickly because the insights we get from the word come in two forms. They come from the details, but they also come from the bird's eye view and you really only get the bird's eye view if you move pretty quickly through a text. So even in a census list or a genealogy, we are going to have both types of insights. So what are some of the insights we should get from this census from the bird's eye view? The first thing we should notice is that this is the second census that God commanded. The first one was back in Numbers chapter one, and there are many similarities between these two censuses. God commanded them both, they were both to be done by ancestral family, and they were both to include all non-Levite males, 20 years old or older, who could fight in Israel's army. The order in which the tribes were counted is different here than it was back in Numbers chapter 1. The order here is done by camp grouping or the camp arrangement. Now, when God commanded the census back in Numbers chapter 1, that was before he gave the camp arrangement. So that's likely that likely accounts for the difference. Counting by camp arrangement would have been the easiest way to do this. Look how practical God is. The next thing we should notice is just how big of an endeavor this actually was. 600,000 men were individually counted. They were counted individually, and then they were also counted as part of their tribe or clan to which they belonged. Now, I think that we can safely assume the same for us. We, each one of us, is seen by God individually, and we are seen as part of the various groups within the body of Christ to which we belong. God is meticulous. As we make our way through the census data, we will notice that mostly it is just a list of each clan within each tribe and then a total number of men counted by tribe.
but inserted throughout are little pieces of ancillary information, details for us to notice. So as we work our way through the census briefly, we're going to look at all of the pieces of information that are inserted throughout. The first place where we find ancillary information is in verses 9 through 11 at the end of the section detailing the census information for the tribe of Reuben. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. It was Dathan and Abiram chosen by the community who fought against Moses and Aaron. They and Korah's followers fought against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with Korah when his followers died and the fire consumed 250 men. They serve as a warning sign. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. So in this section, reference is made to Korah's rebellion, which happened back in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a Levite from the Kohathite clan. He belonged to the same tribe and same clan as Moses and Aaron. And he teamed up with Dathan and Abiram from the tribe of Reuben to lead a rebellion. In response to that rebellion, God was prepared to consume the entire community instantly. But Moses and Aaron interceded on their behalf, and everyone was given the opportunity to separate themselves from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Instead of separating themselves from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Dathan and Abiram's sons did not. They stood with them. And when God's judgment came, they were swallowed by the earth with them. Because they all died, there would be no one from those families to receive an inheritance in the promised land. But God made a point here of specifically telling us in Numbers 26, 11, the sons of Korah did not die. This makes me think of something that God said in Ezekiel chapter 18 about personal accountability. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. But if the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. Here we see an example of this godly principle. Whereas Dathan and Abiram's families died in the rebellion, it certainly seems as though when Moses told everyone to separate themselves, the sons of Korah did. And God spared them. Their fate was not the same as that of the sons of Dathan and Abiram. Our actions matter. The next place where we see details inserted is in verse 19. Judah's sons included Ur and Onan, but they died in the land of Canaan. The details of this account are told back in Genesis chapter 38. Judah had three sons by his wife Shua, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur was married to a woman named Tamar, but Ur was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. As was the custom, Onan then married his brother's widow, Tamar, but he did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death as well. 
And Judah was a little bit nervous about giving his final son to Shelah, to Tamar. So he delayed. And when Tamar realized that he probably wasn't going to give Shelah to him and to her in marriage, she became, in her desperation to have a child, she posed as a prostitute and became pregnant with twins by Judah. So the three sons by which Judah's descendants would be numbered were Shelah, the remaining son from his wife Shua, and then Perez and Zerah, who were his sons by Tamar. Why did God tell us that Judah's sons included Ur and Onan, but that they died in the land of Canaan? Like with Dathan and Abiram, I think this is here to show us that these sons of Judah were cut off. They had no descendants, and they would not inherit land in Canaan because they were evil. Our actions matter. As we move along, the next interesting thing I found inserted in this census came in verse 28. Before we get the totals for the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, we were reminded that they are Joseph's descendants. If you remember, Jacob's son Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and he suffered greatly because of them. Now, over time, he rose to power in Egypt, and when a famine hit, he was able to ensure the survival of all of Jacob and his family. On his deathbed, Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his own. So he essentially elevated his grandsons to the status of sons. Joseph, through his sons, would receive a double portion, and we see this clearly as the land is allocated. Both of his sons would receive a land allotment. So Joseph would receive twice as much as all of Jacob's other sons. Our actions matter. Throughout biblical censuses or genealogies, women are typically not mentioned. So whenever you see a woman in a census or a genealogy, it is definitely to draw attention to something. And there were women mentioned throughout the census. In fact, the next piece of ancillary information we receive involves women. Verse 33, Zelophehad, son of Hefer, had no sons, only daughters. The names of Zelophehad's daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. This is clearly inserted here because Zelophehad's daughters were going to inherit land in the land of Canaan based on their request in chapter 27. We will talk more about that in a bit, but for now, let's just notice that our actions matter. The next piece of ancillary information we receive also involves a woman. Verse 46, and the name of Asher's daughter was Sarah. Sarah is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 46 as among the sons of Asher who went down to Egypt during the famine. The fact that we are told anything at all about Asher's daughter indicates to us that she was very important. Unfortunately, there's not any more information given in the Bible as to why she is important. So 
we can't know for sure, but I was curious. And I will tell you that it did not take much digging at all to find out how important this woman is regarded in Judaism. Jewish tradition holds many big things from, about this lady. It is said at a minimum that she lived a very long time, but some people believe she actually never died, that because of her righteousness, she was one of the people that was permitted to enter heaven alive. She is the one that is attributed to having convinced Jacob that Joseph was still alive, so that he traveled down to Egypt. And it is said that she was still alive when Moses and Aaron came to deliver God's people, and she's the one that convinced them to follow Moses. And if that were not enough, she is the one that is said to have helped um, Moses find Joseph's bones so that the exodus would not be delayed. Many big and important actions are attributed to Sarah, and perhaps that is why she is mentioned here. Our actions matter. After the census was completed, and all 601,730 men were counted, God gave Moses some instructions. Let's pick back up reading in verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses, the land is to be divided among them as an inheritance based on the number of names. Increase the inheritance for a large tribe and decrease it for a small one. Each is to be given its inheritance according to those who were registered in it. The land is to be divided by lot. They will receive an inheritance according to the names of their ancestral tribes. Each inheritance will be divided by lot among the larger and smaller tribes. So each tribe was going to receive a general location within the promised land. And then there, that location would be either expanded or contracted based on how big they were. This census was very important. You see, the promised land was only going to be divided among the 12 tribes one time. After this, no matter how big or small a tribe got, they would retain the same size and location of land. In fact, the Israelites were not even allowed to sell their land. The best they could do was essentially lease it out until the next year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. At the year of Jubilee, the land would return to the original clan and tribe that received it as part of this census. It's worth noting that if the Israelites had been obedient and entered the promised land the first time, the allotment, the size of the allotments would have been based on that first census back in Numbers chapter 1, not this one. And if we compare the numbers by tribe, we would see that clearly some tribes would have been better off if they were obedient the first time. Look at how bad Simeon was off. It went from the third largest tribe to the smallest. The size of each tribe's allotment was determined by the census, but the location of their allotment was determined by God. Like with any land, there were more fertile areas and less fertile areas. There were areas that had prominent trade routes going through them and others that were more remote. There were areas that were constantly at risk of being attacked by enemies and others that were more secure 
more fortified. And God was going to determine the the allotment that each tribe inherited. I think this is such a clear example of the interplay between God's sovereignty and our actions. God was going to determine the area that each tribe received, but the actual size of their allotment was going to be based on when they were actually obedient to the Lord and entered the land. And the timing, too. They could have had this land much sooner. The Israelites' actions mattered. And they and their descendants were going to forever be affected by their actions. Our actions matter. Like with the Numbers 1 census, the Levites were not included in this census. They were not included because they were not going to fight in Israel's military, and they also were not going to receive land in Canaan. But nevertheless, they had their own census. And even in this little mini-census, there's some ancillary information sprinkled in for us to notice. The first of which is in verse 59. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, a descendant of Levi, born to Levi in Egypt. She bore to Amram Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. Two more women are mentioned. Jochebed and Miriam. And this just emphasizes how important these women were. So back, if you remember, back at the beginning of Exodus, Jochebed defied Pharaoh's orders and kept Moses alive. And when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, Miriam offered to help her find a Hebrew nurse for him. These women's actions saved the life of Moses. And Moses would go on to deliver the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. Our actions matter. The next place we see details inserted is in verses 60 and 61. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar were born to Aaron, but Nadab and Abihu died when they presented unauthorized fire before the Lord. God was so specific with the Israelites about every single aspect of the tabernacle and everything in it. He even went so far as to give them the exact recipe for incense to be burned in the holy place. But Nadab and Abihu presented unauthorized fire, and it resulted in their deaths. Our actions matter. Having looked briefly at all of the ancillary information sprinkled throughout the census, I can't help but notice something. God seems pretty determined to pay attention to people who history would happily ignore. Picking back up in verse 63. These were the ones registered by Moses and the priest Eleazar when they registered the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among them, there was not one of those who had been registered by Moses and the priest Aaron when they registered the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them that they would all die in the wilderness. None of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. When the Israelites refused to enter the promised land the first time, God said that the only two people that would enter 
would be Caleb and Joshua, the two scouts who tried to convince the Israelites not to rebel against the Lord. And here we see that God was faithful to what he said. Only Caleb and Joshua remained. Our actions matter. The people had been counted. Direction had been given for dividing up the land. And it is likely that that is what prompted what happened next. Let's pick up back reading in chapter 27, starting in verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad approached. Verse 2. They stood before Moses, the priest Eleazar, the leaders, and the entire community at the entrance of the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among Korah's followers who gathered together against the Lord. Instead, he died because of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Since he had no son, give us property among our father's brothers. It makes perfect sense why Zelophehad's daughters would bring up their request now. Because apart from any action on their part, their father's family would not receive an inheritance. I don't think that it can be overemphasized how big of a thing it was for Zelophehad's daughters to bring this up. To, the, to all of the leadership of Israel, who were all men, by the way. Now, of course, the stakes were high, but look at what it reveals about their thoughts about God. In order for them to bring forward a request like this, they must have believed that it wasn't a hopeless cause. And that's saying something, because at this point in time in history, in pretty much every culture, it was a hopeless cause. In their appeal, they clearly state that their father was not part of Korah's rebellion. Instead, he was part of the rest of the generation whose sin it was that they refused to enter the promised land the first time. So their logic is, if every other family who refused to enter the promised land the first time was going to receive land, they should too. Picking back up in verse 5. Moses brought their request before the Lord, and the Lord answered him, what Zelophehad's daughters say is correct. You are to give them hereditary property among their father's brothers and transfer their father's inheritance to them. Tell the Israelites, when a man dies without having a son, transfer his inheritance to his daughter. This to me is huge. God not only sided with Zelophehad's daughters, he actually went on to add ordinances to the law so that in the future, requests would be handled differently based on their request. Their faith and their actions would not only benefit them. They would benefit countless other women in the future. Our actions matter. But this made me wonder something. I wonder what would have happened if they hadn't been brave enough to bring up their concern. Who knows what benefits we forego by failing to bring to God the things that we are concerned about. Trusting that he hears us and that he will move on our behalf. Listen to the words of Jesus 
Luke 18, 7 and 8. Will not God judge, grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Our requests of God give us insight into the quality of our faith. Just like Zelophehad's daughter's request gave us insight into the quality of their faith. Picking back up in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abarim range and see the land that I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you will also be gathered to your people, as, your brother, as Aaron your brother was. When the community quarreled in the wilderness of Zin, both of you rebelled against my command to demonstrate my holiness in their sight at the waters. Those were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, we are told that Moses begged God to let him enter the land. And that the, the Lord refused, and he told him not to speak to him again on the matter. So Moses made his request known, but when God made his decision known, Moses accepted it. Despite the fact that Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land, he was allowed to see it, which I imagine was a close second. You see, Moses had served faithfully the Lord for decades, and his mission was to take the Israelites to free them from their slavery in Egypt and bring them to the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. So I imagine seeing the land would have given him the feeling that he had in fact completed his mission. Picking back up in verse 15, Moses appealed to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and come back in before them and who will bring them out and bring them in so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without a shepherd. In this section, we see Moses' heart. As he approaches the end of his life, his concern is still for God's people. I think it's pretty prophetic what Moses requested right here. His concern for the people caused him to request a leader that would be like a shepherd. Matthew 2.6 refers to Jesus Christ as a ruler who would shepherd his people. We saw in our homework that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd who was raised from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant. And 1 Peter tells us that he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This request of Moses's would ultimately be fulfilled through God's own son, Jesus Christ. But God still answered Moses' immediate concern. Picking back up in verse 18. The Lord replied to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man who has the spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before the priest Eleazar and the whole community, and commission him in their sight. Confer some of your authority on him, so that the entire Israelite community will obey him. He will stand before the priest Eleazar, who will consult the Lord for him with the decision of the Urim. He and all the Israelites with him, even the entire community, will go out and come back at his command. 
Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, had him stand before the priest Eleazar and the entire community, laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord had spoken through Moses. God answered Moses' request by appointing Moses' longtime assistant to succeed him. And it is not a surprising selection. Joshua had spent decades as Moses' assistant. He had watched how Moses led the people, all the good he did, and even the rare, not-so-good moments. He had proven himself faithful to God. He was one of only two scouts that tried to convince the Israelites to enter the land. And it is likely that his proven faithfulness is why God selected him to succeed Moses. Our actions matter. But I want you to notice something. Joshua would succeed Moses in leading the people, but he wasn't going to be the same as Moses. Moses had been their deliverer. He was the mediator of their covenant with God. He was a prophet. But we see from verse 20 that God had Moses confer some of his authority to Joshua. Moses consulted God directly. He often spoke with God face to face. This wasn't going to be the case for Joshua. In verse 21, he, Joshua, will stand before the priest Eleazar who will consult the Lord for him with the decision of the Urim. We first learned about the Urim and the Thummim back in Exodus chapter 28. They were used by the high priest to determine the, God's will for the people. So whereas Moses would speak with God directly, face to face, Joshua was going to bring his questions or his concerns to the high priest who would use the Urim to determine God's will. So as we wrap up this section of scripture, Joshua was commissioned, but he wasn't going to fully take on his role of leading the Israelites until the death of Moses, which is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34. As we conclude today, I think this week's passage, through both the events that occurred and the past events that were referenced, have emphasized for us that there is indeed an interplay that exists between God's sovereignty and our actions. As we looked at all the ancillary information sprinkled throughout the census, we saw so many examples of people's actions having a direct effect on them and their descendants. We saw the benefits of faithfulness and we saw the disasters of unfaithfulness. If the people learned from the mistakes of the previous generation and they actually entered the land this time, they and their descendants would forever be affected by this. So Lofahad's daughter's courage, their request to God, it not only impacted them, but it impacted countless people in the future. Moses' selfless leadership, it left a legacy. And Joshua's faithfulness resulted in him being appointed as Moses' successor. So I hope today that each and every one of us is left with a very strong impression that our actions do in fact matter. But more than that, I hope that that knowledge spurs us on in our faithfulness to the Lord.